Genesis 1, put your finger there, close it. Then once you've got Genesis 1, I want you to do the following. I want you to turn your mind off. Now, that'll be easier for some of you than others, I realize. (laughs) Genesis 1, turn your mind off. Open your Bible back up and just read the text of Genesis 1. Just read Genesis chapter 1. If you just read Genesis chapter 1, what do you get the idea that the days in Genesis 1 represent? What kind of day? Ordinary day as we commonly understand. If you just turn your mind off, read the text, just read what God's word directly says. You get the idea that God's trying to communicate the idea of ordinary 24 hour day. That's what the text reads. Is there anything else throughout the remainder of scripture that cause you to believe the days in Genesis one are anything other than 24 hour days? Nope, scripture is clear, it's consistent. God says day, he means day, that's what it says. Having said that, why don't the majority of Christians and Christian leaders actually believe the days in Genesis 1 are in fact ordinary 24-hour days? I think we just all agree, if you just read the text of Genesis 1, it says day, it means ordinary day, but the majority of Christians say those days aren't real days. They're millions or zillions or gazillions of years. They're longer periods of time. It's allegory. God said day, but he meant something else. If God's word says day and we don't understand it to mean day, we don't accept it to mean day, we must be getting information from some other source, right? So what would that source of information be? Man, science, so-called. We're taking man's fallible ideas and using them to reinterpret the word of God. And if you do that, is the Bible then your final authority? No. What's your final authority? Man. So next month, next week, next year, when man changed his mind, guess what you get to do? You get to re-reinterpret your Bible. If I go to any church in the world and read this verse, this is one one. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Am I in too much trouble? No, I'm pretty safe with Genesis 1.1. It's Genesis 1 verse 2, the rest of the chapter. I'm running for my life. Why? Because I preach and teach the following. Because this is what God's word clearly indicates. On the first day, he created earth, space, time, and light. On the second day, the atmosphere, the firmament, the expanse. On the third day, the dry land and plants. On the fourth day, sun, moon, and stars. On the fifth day, the flying and sea creatures. On the sixth day, land, animals, and man. Six ordinary 24-hour days. What an almost unimaginable concept to most Christians. You mean those days in Genesis 1 are ordinary days? Yeah. Who says they are? God does. Here's a question for you. Did people and dinosaurs walk the earth together? How do you know that? There's a picture of them up there. Can't you see them? I flew these slides in from Kentucky the other day at great personal risk to my own life. I mean, if you've not flown Delta lately, you understand what I'm talking about. Sure, dinosaurs or land animals are created on day six, the same day as men. Dinosaurs and men walk the earth together. This is not hard. But you see, there's a problem. The Bible's not true. The rock layers show the earth is millions of years old. You got to believe me. I'm a scientist. You know how silly that sounds when you think about it? But that's exactly what happened. Up until, say, the mid-1700s, most people in the church accepted the Bible as reliable, as authoritative. The biblical chronologies and genealogies were accurate and reliable. A general, you know, people who've studied this, scholars over, over the centuries, have come to an age of the earth, roughly 6,000 years to 6,500 years. People accepted the biblical chronology. 
But it was about this time that a group of scientists and philosophers who were no friend of the Bible, in fact, openly rejected the Bible, said, well, you know, we don't accept the Bible as historical. We don't really buy into this idea of a global flood. Noah's flood was a myth. Or if it did happen, it was only a local flood. Or even if it was a global flood, it wasn't all that catastrophic. All sorts of different ways to explain away the flood. But they had a problem. And it turns out they had a problem. It's called rocks. We talked about the rocks this morning. All these layers of sedimentary rock. See, if, if Noah's flood's not a real event, then you've got to explain all these sedimentary rocks. And I said, wait a minute. What about these slow processes of sedimentation we see in our world today? These very slow processes. What if those same processes have gone on for much longer than we originally thought? Maybe we can explain these rocks. We don't need the Bible. We don't need the flood. But we've got to explain these rocks. Hey, guess what? The earth is much older than we thought. And they began to put forth this idea that the earth was tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even up to a few million years old. And this idea became more popular and more popular in scientific and philosophic circles and became more popular and more popular. And then in the early 1800s, where do you think it became popular? In the church particularly the intellectual elite of the Church of England, they said, well, you know, these scientists are scientists. They're pretty smart. And they've determined that the earth is much older than God's word would have us indicate. It's much older than we understood before. This is what we'll do. We'll take the millions of years and put them in the Bible. Folks, that's when the church lost its grip on the authority of Scripture. And it was about this time the young man went off to college. He originally went to college to become a physician like his father and his grandfather, but he pretty quickly decided that medicine wasn't for him. So it was decided he would become a country clergyman. So his field of study was changed to theology. Anybody know who I'm talking about? Charles Darwin, the man who more than any other is credited with coalescing this idea of biological evolution, that over long periods of time, one kind of creature can change into another. Early on in his life, Darwin rejected the reliability of Scripture. Who said he did? As a matter of fact, he said it. Whilst on board the Beagle, I was quite orthodox. But I'd gradually come by this time to see that the Old Testament from its manifestly false history of the world was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus or the beliefs of any barbarian. Early on, Darwin rejected the reliability, the historicity of the Old Testament. While he was on board the ship, the Beagle, he was actually reading the works of a man named Charles Lyell. The book was called Principles of Geology, which set forth this idea that the earth was millions of years old. You see, he bought into the idea of the millions of years. And frankly, to me, this idea of the age of the earth is much more important even than evolution. Because when Darwin got back to England and he started studying the specimens that he collected and the things he sent back, he planted his observations on this fertile ground, if you will, of the idea that the earth was very ancient. I mean, would anybody in this room accept the idea that 6,000 years ago, the first simple life form, you know, somehow assembled itself, and over 6,000 years, you go from one simple life form to man? Anybody believe that can happen in 6,000 years? One cell creature to man in 6,000 years. Going once, going twice. So nobody buys that. Okay, we agree. We're unanimous. That can't happen. Why don't you accept that? Well, I'll tell you the best answer I ever got. Because I generally do this talk on the Sunday night of a conference. And I was in a church a year or two ago. It was a pretty good-sized church. It had like 1,500 people in the sanctuary. And when I asked this question, why don't you accept that? That group did the same thing you just did. They got deadly quiet. I could have heard hair move in that room. That's how quiet it was. 
Nobody wants to answer that question. I was thinking, why didn't anybody answer? And after about 15 seconds, the cutest little boy you ever saw, about the third pew on my right side, just jumped up in the pew and said, because it's just stupid. (laughs) Now, I don't know that I would have put it that way, but I still don't have a better answer. I mean, it's plainly absurd. I mean, if evolution happened that fast, you'd go home tonight and it's going to say, well, the state legislature did this and uh, tomorrow the, you know, the Congress is going to do that and the president's traveling here and uh, so-and-so won the football game. And today a dog turned into a giraffe. I mean, if evolution had that, things would be evolving before your very eyes. But what if you've got vast, almost unimaginable time periods? Maybe, just maybe, You can make yourself believe that one kind of animal can change into another. And folks, that's why this is such an important issue to the evolutionists. They know without the millions and billions of years, they're dead in the water. Who says that? Well, as a matter of fact, they do. The Darwinian revolution began when it became obvious that the earth was very ancient rather than having been created only 6,000 years ago. This finding was the snowball that started the whole avalanche. This quote's from a gentleman named Ernst Mayer, who's been called by many in the evolutionary community as being second only to Darwin himself and his influence on Darwinian thought. He says without the millions and billions of years, we're dead in the water. Now, that explains why the evolutionist is so attached to this idea of the millions of years. But why do most Christians accept it? Well, Tommy, you've been to medical school. You know, you've taken all these science classes. Don't you know that the scientists have all these tests? They've proven that the earth is very ancient. What about those dating methods? Boy, I get questions about dating methods all the time. There are several hundred processes that have been used over over, the past decades to date things. And if you look at all the known dating methods, more than 90% of the known dating methods give an age of the earth less than a billion years. Only a handful of these dating methods will give an age of the earth in the 4.5, 4.7 billion year range. These things are all over the place. What I tell people is this. If you tell me how old you think the earth is... Anywhere from roughly 3,800 years to 4.8 billion years, I'll find you a dating method that agrees with you. These things are all over the place. And whether it's changing the Earth's magnetic field or salt deposition in the ocean or sediment deposition in the river delta, radioactive decay of an isotope, all sorts of different processes. But the thing is, those are things you can measure or analyze in the present. And measuring or analyzing those things in the present, that's real science. Now, when is science done? It's done now. Let me give you an example. Let's just say that I wanted to measure the erosion rate at Niagara Falls. Now, I have no idea why anybody would want to do that. I have no idea what it is, so just work with me here. If I wanted to measure the erosion rate at Niagara Falls, how would I go about doing it? Go to Niagara Falls. Falls. These are not hard questions, folks. (laughs) Again, if you have to do that, you've overthought it, okay? Okay, poof, I'm at Niagara Falls. So what am I going to do? I'll say, well, guess what? The edge of the falls right there. So I'm going to go away. I'm going to come back in two weeks. The edge of the falls is right there. The edge of the falls is right. You see the pattern? I'm going to go away. I'm going to come back. I'm going to say, guess what? The edge of the falls is right there. And I'm going to take data points for ever how long it takes I gather enough data points to make my calculations and conclusions you know, statistically significant. And I take these data points, say, over two years or so, and I got all this data points, and I, and, I, and I do the numbers, and I say, well, over that period of time, it changed, and I've measured the erosion rate to be two inches a month. I have no idea what it is, so, so don't, don't hold me to the number. It's two inches a month. Now, all what I've just done is that science. 
You bet it is. It's, it's observable. It's testable. It's repeatable. Those are observations I've made over time that I've taken or others have made. I collected that data. I made my calculations. Now, what if I said, well, Edge of the Falls is right there. I wonder where the edge of the falls was 50,000 years ago. So I say it's right here now, and over 50,000 years, I know the erosion rate, so that 50,000 years ago, the edge of the falls would have been way over yonder. And that means a fur piece that way, in case you're wondering. <laughs> Is that science? No. You know what that's called? It's not even, it doesn't even rise to the level of theory. It's called assumption. Because to make that determination, I have to make several assumptions. I'm assuming that the rate of erosion that I've measured has gone on unchanged over that period of time. I'm assuming this, this edge of the falls has not been affected by some, some earthquake or something that didn't fall off or a big chunk didn't fall off in some catastrophe. I'm even assuming I know the original conditions. You see, the secular world says these assumptions are logical. Therefore, we're going to consider them scientific. What they are, they're, they're assumptions. They're not testable. Now, the most commonly cited dating methods are those methods that involve decay of a radioisotope. You know, uranium, lead, rubidium, strontium, those kind of things. And the thing is, those are the things that, those are the types of dating methods that are actually best to give these so-called long age, uh, you know, uh, 4.5, 4.7 billion year range. Now, what I'm going to do in the next three minutes, three and a half minutes or so, I'm going to make you an expert in radioactive decay. Now, I, know, I don't want you to get too excited because I know you didn't come here tonight to become a nuclear physicist. And I know you're very excited because you're going to learn a new trade. You probably work on a nuclear reactor tomorrow. But nonetheless, in the next three and a half minutes, I'm going to make you an expert in this whole issue of radiometric dating. Are you ready? Now, frankly, you don't sound nearly excited enough. <laughs> Because if I were going to get this guy, I would like totally be excited, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make you an expert in radiometric dating. Are you ready? Yes. Well, I'm glad because it's coming anyway because guess what? I have the clicker. <laughs> My wife has always said, avoid giving Tommy too much responsibility. You're bad. I got it. Ready? Okay, we're going to start making you an expert right about now. Nearly every textbook in science magazine teaches that the Earth is billions of years old, and the primary dating method used for determining this is what is called radioisotope dating, or radiometric dating. Now, this is a reliable method for measuring absolute ages of rocks and the age of the Earth, right? Huh. First off, many scientists now regard the age of the Earth to be between 4.55 and 4.6 billion years old. Okay, so if this method is reliable and accurate, why the 50 million year discrepancy? That seems like a lot, but let's get into some details here and see what's going on. Keep in mind that there's all kinds of scientific jargon on this topic, and so we'll just present a very straightforward, simplified version of the process. Radiometric dating is the process of estimating the ages of rocks based on the decay of radioactive elements in them. Basically, there are certain kinds of atoms in nature that are unstable and spontaneously decay into other kinds of atoms. For instance, uranium will radioactively decay through a series of steps until it becomes the stable element called lead. The original element is called the parent element, and the end result is called the daughter element. Radioisotope dating is commonly used to date igneous rocks, rocks which formed when hot molten material cooled and solidified. The dating clock started when the rock cooled. During the molten state, it is assumed that the intense heat forced any gaseous daughter elements to escape. It is assumed that once the rock cooled, no more atoms escaped, and any daughter element now found in the rock is a result of radioactive decay since that rock formed. The decay rate is measured in terms of half-life. That is, the length of time it takes half of the remaining atoms of a radioactive parent element to decay. Now, of course, that can be measured in a laboratory, and it is assumed that since we know the decay rate, we can calculate backwards and come up with the age of the rock. 
but is that all there is to it? Here's where it gets tricky. It's true we can measure a decay rate using observational science, but there's another kind of science that is required to accurately calculate dates for rocks, and that is what we call historical science. Historical science deals with the things in the past, and therefore it cannot be repeated and tested. Dating methods require both types of science, because in order to get accurate rock dates, one would have to accurately know both the decay rate and the initial conditions of the rock sample, right? Since radioisotope dating uses both types of science, we can't directly measure the ages of rocks. There are assumptions involved. For instance, how do we know what the initial conditions were in the rock sample? How do we know the amounts of parent or daughter elements now in that sample haven't been altered by other processes in the past? How does someone know the decay rate has remained constant since the rock formed? The answer is, they don't. Let's simplify here and talk about a typical hourglass. Let's say you walk into a room and you see an hourglass with sand at the top and sand at the bottom and some sand sprinkling from the top chamber to the bottom. Well, observational science would allow us to see and measure the sand and then calculate how long the hourglass has been running, right? We could make our sand measurements and then calculate when the hourglass was turned over, right? Well, those calculations could be wrong because we may have failed to consider some major assumptions. Like, was there any sand at the bottom when the hourglass was turned over? Has any sand been added or taken out of the hourglass? Has the sand always been falling at a constant rate? Since we did not observe the initial conditions when the hourglass started, and we haven't been watching the sand all the time since then, we must make assumptions. All three of those assumptions can affect our time calculations. Now, of course, there's more to understanding all of this, but enough said. See, you're now experts. This is not hard, right? I'm going to show you some examples. Just, I'm not going to throw a bunch of equations at you. I'm just going to give you some simple examples. How many people have heard it said that carbon-14 dating proves the Earth is millions of years old? I've actually heard that on television, and it's just not true. If carbon-14 dating were as accurate and reliable as the secular world wants you to think it is, it's not something that can be used to date things that are supposedly millions of years old. The outer limit for carbon-14 dating would be roughly 80 to 100,000 years. The reason is the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years, which meant if you had a pound of carbon-14 in 5,730 years, half of it would have decayed away. Another 5,730 years, half of that would be gone. That's the way half-life works. So there's no way carbon-14 can last in a sample for millions of years. It's not possible. So to me, it was curious because a group of scientists got together and decided they were going to carbon-14 date some diamonds. Does anybody know how long it's supposed to take diamonds to form in nature? What the secular estimate for diamond formation is? Anybody got any clue? Long time. Long time. Thank you very much. A long, long, long time. Well, what is supposed to be? It's supposed to be hundreds of millions to perhaps a billion years. Now, I saw Superman do it one time in seven seconds. <laughs> Lois Lane gave him a piece of coal and he squoze it. That means apply positive pressure with your hand. He went, and he opened his hand, and he had a diamond. And it was cut. Superman, bad. Except for Superman, it's supposed to take like a billion years for diamonds to form. So I thought, why would you carbon 14 days something you think is a billion years old? Well, the reason is the, the actual structure of diamonds would prohibit any significant contamination. But nonetheless, they sent these diamonds off to the lab. They carbon 14 dated them and found out the diamonds were 58,000 years old. Now, we would dispute the 58,000-year date for methodologic issues. But nonetheless, if diamonds are a billion years old, there should be no carbon 14 in them. But if diamonds are 58,000 years old, they can't be a billion years old. You see, you kind of got a problem either way you turn. They were digging a ventilation shaft in a mine in Australia some years ago. And about 70 feet or so below the surface, they found a, a layer of basalt. And in this basalt, they found wood. Now, they were really shocked by that. They said, wow, that's amazing. That's incredible. We didn't expect to find wood here. I wonder how old the wood is. 
So the first thing they did, they sent the rock off to the lab. The rock dated 45 million years old. Then they sent the wood off to the lab. The wood dated 45,000 years old. Question, how do you get 45,000-year-old wood inside a 45-million-year-old rock? I mean, 45,000 years ago, the Aborigines dig down there and say, boy, they're really going to be surprised when they dig this out. <laughs> boy, it's going to be a big joke on them in about 50,000 years. May, May 1980, Mount St. Helens, the top inside of this mountain just exploded. If you've ever get a chance to go to Mount St. Helens, you really need to go. It's very impressive even today to stand there and just try to wrap your mind around the magnitude of the force that, that occurred when this thing exploded. But anyway, since the initial eruption of Mount St. Helens, there's a lava dome that's formed in the top in the crater. Mount St. Helens. And Dr. Steve Austin, who has a PhD in geology from Penn State, wonderful creation geologist, as part of his research a couple of years ago, decided he wanted to radiometrically date the rock in the lava dome. So he went up to the lava dome and took some rocks, sent them off to the lab, and the lab said these rocks were 340,000 to 2.8 million years old. Now, right away, you've got to be scratching your head. Because that's not the most precise range of dates I've ever seen. It's like a 700% difference. Now, remember the video. When the lava is flowing, the radiometric clock is not operating. The radiometric clock only starts when the lava cools, when the rock actually forms. So these rocks are said to be 340,000 to 2.8 million years old. The problem you've got is these rocks were less than 12 years old when he sent them off to the lab. These, see, these methods that are so accurate and so reliable, they've caused most Christians to openly doubt and question the Word of God. They've just measured a 12-year-old rock to be at least 340,000 years old. We've gone around the world to places where we have historical records of when certain lava flows occurred. And using potassium-argon dating, we've dated the rocks. The eruption in Sicily in 122 B.C., the rocks dated 170,000 to 330,000 years old. That's not even close if you do the math. The eruption in Sicily in 1972 dated 210,000 to 490,000 years old. The more recent eruption dated older than the older eruption. The eruption at Mount St. Helens in 1986, 300,000 to 400,000 years old. New Zealand, 1954, 3.3 to 3.7 million years old. Hawaii, 1959, 1.7 to 15.3 million years old. Wow, with accuracy like that, no wonder we doubt the Word of God. You see, when you know how old rocks are, when you have a historical record that tells you when certain lava flows occurred, if you radiometrically date those rocks, the radiometric dates don't match the historical dates. But if you don't know how old the rocks are, you assume the dating methods work, which is really quite convenient. In general, dates in the correct ballpark are assumed to be correct and are published. But those in disagreement with other data are seldom published, nor are the discrepancies fully explained. This is what? You're getting better. My slides are labeled. <laughs> you see those rock layers? Those rock layers are obviously millions of years old. And you got two options. Either a whole lot of time and a little bit of water caused those rock layers, or a whole lot of water and a little bit of time caused those rock layers. But you know what you find in lots of those rock layers? You find fossils. We're going to talk about fossils a little more in the next session. How does something become a fossil? It gets buried very rapidly. <laughs> Remember the time of the flood? Lots of things got buried rapidly. Given the right conditions, the right circumstances, how long does it take to make a fossil? How long does the process of fossilization take? Here's a petrified ham. 
This ham was on a table in a mining shed in New Zealand, got covered by an avalanche. They dug it out 50 years later. The ham had petrified. How long does it take to make a fossil? 50 years or less. Sometime in that 50-year time period, this thing fossilized. Now, the next one, I'm always, always kind of sort of, there's a battle going on inside my head about whether or not I should even show this because I don't like to show fossils just for their shock value, okay? I mean, some fossils are kind of creepy. I understand that. But sometimes the educational benefit does outweigh the shock value. So I want you to kind of prepare yourself for the next fossil. Um, it, I, I, I'm sorry. I apologize if it kind of creeps you out too much. You may want to grab hold of the person next to you and kind of, you know. But, but anyway, once we get past the shock value, I want to give you the educational side of it. So nonetheless, I know this is creepy. I Apologize in advance. Here's a fossil hat. <laughs> How do you know this hat's not three million years old? Guy a couple of weeks ago yelled out, because it's out of style, which I thought was just a great answer, but it was wrong. Well, there are two reasons. One, there were no hat factories three million years ago. And two, if evolution were true three million years ago, we'd been closer to apes than humans. We couldn't have worn hats anyway. We'd been swinging from branches. This hat was found in a mine after 50 years. It had petrified. Here's a petrified flower sack. It took three weeks. Math question, or history question, is three weeks less than a million years. From 1924 to 1988, there was a visitor sign above the entrance to Carlsbad Caverns that said Carlsbad was at least 260 million years old. In 1988, the sign was changed to read 7 to 10 million years old. Then for a little while, the sign read it was two million years old. Now the sign's gone. <laughs> that thing got younger and younger. They just took that bad boy down. You see, if the days in Genesis aren't real days, what are they? As I've shared with some of you already, for 15 years of my life, I was a theistic evolutionist. I would have argued strongly that evolution was true. I bought into the idea of millions of years. You know, when God said day in Genesis, he said day, but he meant millions of years. You know, some sort of allegory. You know, God said day, but he meant long geologic time period. Some people accept what's called the gap theory. That's after Genesis 1-1. That's, that's when, you know, Lucifer was sort of ruled the earth, and that's where the millions of years were, and he rebelled, and God judged it, and, and there's sort of a ruined reconstruction. There are several variations of the gap theory. Uh, there are any number of problems with it. First and foremost is if you read the text, there's no gap. And if you read interpret the words to put a gap there if you reinterpret the, those words the same way further on in the Old Testament it makes the Old Testament nonsense but see everybody that has these sort of reinterpretations of Genesis they all struggle with the same problem whether it's gap theory whether it's day age theory whether it's theistic evolution all these reinterpretations have one common flaw one common problem one common factor you know what that factor is it's the millions of years We've got to find a place to put the millions of years where they obviously don't belong. I talk to people all the way and tell me, yeah, Tommy, the days in Genesis 1 can't be ordinary days. Why? Because of the millions of years. Would you look at this sentence? Back in my father's day, it took 10 days to drive across the Australian outback during the day. Now, does that sentence make sense to you? I mean, at least grammatical sense. Sure, it's a simple, basic sentence. In one sentence, we have the same word three times. The word day is used three times. In the same sentence, it has three different meanings. Back in my father's day, the word day means what? It's an indefinite period of time. It's a season of life. Uh, it took 10 days. What does it mean there? The 24-hour days. During the day means what? 
the daylight portion of the day. We have the same word in this sentence three times. It has three different meanings. We don't even flinch trying to interpret it. Why? Because we know the rules of grammar of our language. So the speaker or the writer, when he's going to communicate this to somebody, will structure or construct the sentence in such a way that the desired meaning of that word at that part of the sentence is easily understood by the reader or the listener. That's just the way language works. Well, guess what? It works the same way in Hebrew. The word for day in Hebrew is the word yom, Y-O-M. Well, Tommy, you people with answers in Genesis, you're just totally confused about this because yom can mean something other than a 24-hour day. And you know something? It can, but it can also mean 24-hour day. Yeah, Tommy, but because yom can mean something other than a 24-hour day, it obviously doesn't mean day in Genesis. It means something other than a 24-hour day. So you're just wrong. Yom can mean something other than a 24-hour day. And it can. It can also mean 24-hour day. So you have to find a way to understand what it means in given circumstances. So this is what happened. We looked at the Old Testament. And every time the word yom was used to see if we could find, you know, common way uh, constructions or grammatical constructions, linguistic rules that we can apply to see if we can understand and, uh, and apply to different circumstances. This is what you find when the word day or the word yom is used in a sentence with a number. That construction occurs 410 times. It always means ordinary day. You know, King David got up on the 15th day of the month, went out and killed the bear. It always means ordinary day. When the words evening and morning are used in a sentence without the word day or without the word yom, that occurs 38 times, always means ordinary day. When the words evening or morning are used in a sentence with the word day or the word yom, that occurs 23 times, again, always means ordinary day. When the word night is used in a sentence with the word day or the word yom, that occurs 52 times. It always means ordinary day. Anybody want to guess what my next slide is? Genesis 1, verse 5. Night, evening, morning, number, day. What does the word day in Genesis 1, verse 5 mean? Ordinary 24-hour day. Verse 8, evening, morning, number, day. Verse 13, evening, morning, number, day. Verse 9, are you starting to see a pattern here? What's God directly trying to communicate to us in Genesis 1? Ordinary 24-hour day. The word yom is used over 2,300 times in the Old Testament. It is only questioned in Genesis chapter 1. Why? You've got to find a place for the millions of years. Well, Tommy, you really shouldn't even be speaking on this because you really have no expertise. You're by no means an academic authority or very learned in this area. You have no academic expertise to even be discussing this. You don't have advanced degrees in languages or linguistics. You really don't. You, I just don't even know why you, you're bold enough to come in public and discuss this. And you know that charge against me is totally correct. I am not an academic authority in this in this area. I'm very well read in this area. I understand the topic very well, but I do not present myself as, a, as an academic authority by any means. I do have a daughter who has a degree in biblical a master's in biblical languages and a master's in linguistics i have neither of those degrees well tommy having said you just admitted you have no expertise or even really good knowledge about this and if you have any expertise in anything it's medicine and life sciences you should really stick to that and the reason i know that you're wrong and you people in answers in genesis are wrong and you are totally wrong about this yom stuff by the way and the reason i know you're wrong is because i've had an entire semester of hebrew and that's come up a lot folks you'd be you'd be amazed Yes, I've had an entire semester of Hebrew, and I say you're wrong, and my professor says you're wrong, my textbook says you're wrong, so you're wrong. You know, my response to that is simply this. There's only one thing more dangerous than somebody with one semester of Hebrew. 
That's somebody one semester of medical school. You don't want them doing your heart transplant, right? I made that comment a few months ago. I said, there's only one thing more dangerous than somebody one semester of Hebrew. And the pastor jumped up and said, yes, somebody with two. So anyway, in case you've had a semester of Hebrew. What did the writer of Genesis intend to convey? As far as I know, there's no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to readers the idea that, A, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. B, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by simple addition a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story. C, Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguished all human and animal life except for those in the ark. Professor James Barr, Hebrew scholar and oral professor of the interpretation of Holy Scriptures at Oxford University. Would you agree that ascending to that academic position indicates this man is a world-class scholar? I certainly would. This man said there's no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who would even suggest that the intent of the writer was anything other than ordinary 24-hour day. That's what the original language indicates. That's what it means. That's what it says. There's no debate. It means ordinary day. Having said that, Professor Barr believes in the millions of years. He's what you call a hostile witness. He's one of those academics that says that Scripture should not be interpreted literally in any case. But nonetheless, even this skeptic, even this hostile witness says the language indicates ordinary day. Now, who created language? God did. I mean, could Adam and Eve speak to each other? At least initially, right? Okay, here the guys laugh first. It usually takes about two or three seconds. I don't know if the women or the guy, guys, I get it. You know. Now, did God have, it, have at his disposal the means to communicate time periods other than ordinary day? I mean, if he'd used millions of years, did he have the ability to communicate that to us clearly? Of course. There are words in biblical Hebrew that are very suitable for communicating long periods of time or indefinite time. None of those words are used in Genesis 1. I wonder why. Maybe he meant day. Six days? Yeah. Six truly really days? Yeah. You sure it says six days? Yeah. I wonder why he took so long. <laughs> Tommy, you people answers in Genesis. I just, I can't believe what you're telling me. You're telling me I got to believe God created everything in six days? That's what you, you're telling me I got to believe God created everything in six days. Is that what, is that, is that am I understanding that right? You tell me I got to believe six days? Tommy, you're limiting God. You people in answer just you're putting God in a box. You're limiting God. And that charge comes up against us. And I just sometimes I just wonder what people are thinking. Let me ask you a question. Could God have created everything in six hours? Six minutes? Six seconds. I agree with you all three times. My God is so awesome and so incredible and so powerful. He could have used any time period he chose. I am not limiting God. You know what I'm doing? I'm believing him. It's not a question of what he could have done. It's a question of what he plainly said he did. He said six days. I said, I'm good with that. Well, let's go back to this question. Why did he take so long? You ever think about this? Where do we get our idea for a week? You know, there are things in our physical world that help us understand or count or define for us certain time periods. I mean, what in our physical world defines a day? How do we understand what a day is? 
No, no, it's got nothing to do with day and night. It's got to do one rotation of the earth. One rotation of the earth. What's a month? Moon goes around the earth. What's a year? Earth goes around the sun. What's a week? Seven days, right? Where do we get that idea? How about this? Exodus twenty eleven. For in six days the Lord made heaven, earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. See, it's God's example for man. You work for six, you rest on the seventh. And for those people who are gap theory proponents, you got any number of problems. One of your biggest is called Exodus twenty eleven. It's like God saying, oh, yeah, by the way, if you weren't paying attention in Genesis 1, let me tell you again, I created everything in six days. You know, this is actually part of the Ten Commandments. It's part of the Fourth Commandment. Are the, are, are the Ten Commandments good moral teaching? Yes. Work with me. Are the Ten Commandments inspired of God? Yes. What else are the Ten Commandments? They're written by God. I saw Charlton Heston bring those tablets down from that mountain. God said, in case you weren't paying attention, let me write it. He wrote it down for us, and we don't believe. Christians are often inclined to take the young earth position simply because it appears to be the plainest reading of the Bible. Well, Don Stoner said that, but he doesn't believe it. He believes in the Big Bang and the millions of years. But he said, you know, if you just read your Bible, the most straightforward reading is God's trying to communicate the idea of ordinary day. Paddle pun at Wheaton College. It's apparent that the most straightforward understanding of the Genesis record, without regard to all the hermeneutical considerations suggested by science, see, God created heaven and earth in six solar days. The most straightforward understanding is six solar days. What prevents him from accepting that? Well, these scientific considerations. Charles Hodge in his systematic theology wrote this. The church has been forced more than once to alter her interpretation of the Bible to accommodate the discoveries of science. But this has been done without doing any violence to the scriptures or in any degree impairing their authority. Is that a true statement? I don't believe that's a true statement at all. In order to make my case, in order to demonstrate that, I am now going to take the contrary position. Which, by the way, my wife says I excel at. So, that from now on, the days in Genesis are no longer days. I'm going to accept the process, the idea that the, that the days in Genesis are millions or billions of years. It says day, but it means millions of years. And frankly, you people answers in Genesis, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're being very argumentative about this. Because it's not just love Jesus. It all, it all it matters. Don't worry about what Scripture says. doesn't matter. Just, just, I don't care. You're making a big... Why, why should I believe it's day? Obviously, it's millions of years. That's what I accept. And if I want to accept the millions of years and you want to say it's a day, it doesn't really affect anything else in Scripture. So the days in Genesis are no longer days. It doesn't make any difference because it doesn't matter what you believe because it doesn't affect anything else in the Bible, right? So as of right now, the millions of years are true. Question, how old was Adam when he died? How old was Adam when he died? You still won't be the first one to say it, right? What day was Adam created? What day of creation week was Adam created? Six. Now, I know we should not assume things. Assuming things is really bad. But for the sake of this discussion, Adam was created on day six. Is it safe to then assume he was alive on day seven? 
If the days in Genesis aren't real days, how old was Adam when he died? Because he couldn't have been 930. And guess what? If the days in Genesis aren't real days, Adam couldn't have been 930 when he died. And if that's true, you just did yourself an extraordinary favor. You just did yourself an, by the most unimaginable you know, stroke of good luck. You just did yourself a favor. Because you know all those parts of Scripture that says so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so? You know, those are your favorite parts, I know, right? <laughs> You know, those are the parts you tell your Sunday school teacher you read, but you really don't because you can't pronounce the names anyway. Guess what? If, if Adam wasn't 930 when he died, you know what you can do with every genealogy and every chronology in Scripture? You can throw them out because they're worthless. And you do have the authority to do that because 2 Timothy 3.16 says some Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Is there a typo there? Did I miss something? What did I miss? You tell me it says all? No, come on. Even those begats? You know what I say? Especially those begats. You know what those begats do? They draw a direct line between Adam and who? Best that line not be broken. Well, let's move on because we don't want to bring too much religion or Bible into our discussion after all. Thorns Thorns came as a result of what? Who sinned? Adams, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thorns came as a result of man's disobedience. Well, not really. Because, you know, I know that the the days in Genesis aren't real days. Why? Why do you know that? Well, see the rocks? These rocks are obviously millions of years old. Here's the proof. See, these rock layers that were laid down over millions of years. So the days in Genesis can't be days. You know what you find in some of those rock layers? You find fossil thorns. They're said to be anywhere between 360 and 416 million years old. So how can you have thorns for hundreds of millions of years before man could have sinned to have brought thorns? Well, again, let's move on. We don't want to get bogged down too much in this theology stuff. Plants were created on what day of creation week? What day? What day were the sun, moon, and stars put in position? Okay. What about the flying insects and the birds? Okay. Can plants live 24 hours without sunlight? Sure, 24 hours, no problem. Can plants live an entire geologic age without sunlight? Ah. But Tommy, you're not, you're, you're not being fair. There was already light there. There was light there from what day? From day one. Now, we're not giving the absolute source, but there was light from day one. So maybe the light from day one was adequate to drive photosynthesis. So we'll set our day four objection aside. Do certain plants need birds and or insects to reproduce? Can they live two days without those creatures? Sure. Can they have two geologic ages without those creatures? You see, you've got a disconnect. You've got two accounts of origins. You've got God's account. You've got man's account. These two accounts do not agree. If one of them's right, the other one's what? It's just that simple. And if you accept man's account of origins, you don't have one problem with God. You've got two. He's not only forgetful, he's incompetent. He can't remember how long it took him to do things. He can't remember the order he did things in. And guess what? That's still not your biggest problem. Was Noah's flood a global flood? Did it cover all the planet or was it just like a local flood, just like kind of localized to Mesopotamia? Did it cover everything or was it just a local flood? Noah's flood covered everything. Is that what you're telling me? So you don't believe in a local flood? I'm just asking. So nobody believes a local flood. Okay, you weren't there. 
How do you know it was a global flood? 15 cubits upward did the waters prevail and the mountains were covered. I am not a geologist. I'm not a hydrologist. I'm just a poor, simple medical doctor. But I do know one thing about water. It runs downhill. So when it says the mountains were covered, what does it mean? It means the mountains were covered. I cannot count all occasions in my life when I've talked to geologists who've told me, Tommy, I can't believe you buy this whole idea. It's almost a fairy tale about the flood because I'm a professional geologist and I've studied the surface of the earth. And I can tell you just absolutely there is no physical evidence anywhere on the earth of a global flood. There's just no evidence of a global catastrophe. You know what that kind of comment to me is? It's nonsense. There's evidence. You know where the evidence is? It's everywhere. It's like the surface of the earth just screams there was a catastrophe. What about billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid in by water all over the earth? It's like the earth just screams there was something catastrophic causing what you see. But guess what? That only works if the days in Genesis are real days. Let me tell you why. Well, the days in Genesis aren't real days. How do you know that? Well, see, these rocks, these rocks were obviously laid down over hundreds of millions of years. It always goes back to the rocks. These rocks are the proof. This is my proof that the days in Genesis aren't ordinary days. So during those six days, that's when all those rock layers were laid down. So guess what? If those rock layers were laid down during those six days, and after that there was a global cataclysmic, you know, catastrophic flood, what's it going to do to your rocks? It's going to resort and reshuffle them. Then your rocks are going to be on the basis of the flood. You see, you can't have it both ways. There are a group of people, we call them old earth creationists, which is really kind of a almost schizophrenic way of looking at things because they reject evolution. They reject what the life sciences people say. But at the same time, they accept what the physical science people say. Through some method or you know, checklist on their own, they say these scientists are right and these scientists are wrong. But anyway, they accept the millions of years, but they reject evolution. You know what their biggest single problem is? It's called the flood. You should read their books and go to their websites and see how they twist scripture out of all recognizable form, trying to convince you and I'm sure themselves that the flood was only a local event. You can't have it both ways. If you believe in the millions of years, you cannot logically argue for a global flood. You see how everything falls apart. It is important. All this does fit together. Here's a question. How long was Jonah and the great fish? 3,000 years, right? How long did they march around that city? Really? <laughs> well, Tommy, you've got to understand that God's time is not our time. God's time is not our time. Tommy, don't you know that one day is with the Lord's a thousand years? Folks, I, it, it just boggles my mind how many times people have brought me 2 Peter 3.8 to show me how wrong I am about the word yom in Genesis. But in all those times, it's in the hundreds and hundreds of times people have brought me this verse. This is their proof. This is the proof that, that the word day in Genesis can't be day. One day is with the Lord's a thousand years. And all those times, without exception, everyone who's ever brought me 2 Peter 3.8 to show me how wrong I am, none of those people have ever read me the entire verse. You know what the rest of the verse is? A thousand years. That just cancels that right out. This is not a verse you can use as a proof text for the meaning of the word yom in Genesis. First of all, this is in Greek. That's in Hebrew. That's just not the way it works. The context of this verse is God is outside of time. I mean, who needs time? Us or God? Us. I mean, this whole thing, God's time is not our time. That's silly. God doesn't need time. We need time. You know, so we get to work on time. We take the cake out of the oven at the right time. How long was Jesus in the tomb? What if I told you it's 3,000 years? 
Would that bother you? It'd bother me because that means he's still there, by the way. But guess what? It makes much more sense to use this as a proof text of the word day in the Gospels than it does to use it as a proof text for the word yom in Genesis. You see, you've got a disconnect. But tonight I'm feeling in a particularly gracious and giving mood. So people who want to use this objection, guess what, folks? I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to grant you this objection. The days in Genesis are no longer days. Each of those days is a thousand years. So creation week is not six days. It's 6,000 years. Are you any closer to making evolution work? So when you think it through, the argument doesn't even make any sense. You see, if those rock layers are millions of years old, you got a huge problem. you got to explain millions of years of death, 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 and more death. Oh, Adam, it's such a perfect world. Yes, Eve, it's very good like God said. That's what God's Word tells us. you got to make yourself believe this is what God's Word means. Either God created in six days as a perfect creation where there was no death, man's disobedience brought death and corrupted this perfect creation, or death has always been here. You really have no third choice. If you deal with scripture in such a way that God, if you deal with scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God Himself says what is written, but since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly turn His word in the direction you wish it to go. In 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. As we get ready to close this session, I just want to share with you one of the innumerable examples in my own life that God has a sense of humor. First of all, I have a wife and three daughters, which I know God thinks is totally hysterical. But I haven't had my own opinion since 1989. Uh, And so I conservatively estimate it saves me 23 to 27 minutes a day. It has been quite a time saver. But a few years ago, I guess it was in late 2005, Answers in Genesis called and said they wanted me to consider, you know, coming on board full time. And my wife and I felt like that's what we, you know, the Lord was calling us to do. So I started the process of, uh, you know, withdrawing from my medical practice and making plans to move uh, from Tennessee to Kentucky. And we, we uh, bought a house in Kentucky. And I wanted to get Liz and the girls moved up there as quick as we could. It's going to take me another few months to kind of, you know, disconnect from my medical practice. So the week we were going to close on the house, I got this genius plan. I said, honey, why don't we rent a U-Haul and we can take the first load of furniture up? At least we got to drive up there. We might as well make it worthwhile. We can start, you know, getting you and the girls settled. So I don't know if anybody here has rented a U-Haul lately. But maybe you've seen them in the lots or you've passed one of them on the, on the, on the road. You know, a lot of these bigger U-Hauls have these big pictures on the side. You know, come to Philadelphia and see the Liberty Bell or, you know, come to Texas and see the Alamo or come to Florida and get eaten by a shark. You know, whatever. You, you know, you've seen those big pictures. I want to show you the U-Haul that I got. No, no. It's funnier than you think. Did you know? The Hagerman horse grazed Idaho's ancient savanna over three million years ago. <laughs> Fossils indicate this zebra-like species continued to evolve until 10,000 years ago when all traces of the creature suddenly vanished. America's first horse, was it a zebra? Was it a horse? Learn more about the real story of the horse at uhaul.com. <laughs> well, I was actually working that day and my wife went to pick up the U-Haul. And let's just say that Liz was not quite as vigilant as I would have hoped she would have been. So she drives the U-Haul home, turns it into the drive, and my three daughters, you know, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, they come out and look at the truck, read the side of the truck, and start laughing hysterically, saying, we can't wait for Daddy to get home. 
So I came home that afternoon just in as I could be, and I was driving down the street, and I saw the U-Haul drive. I thought, great, we're going to start loading the U-Haul. Everything's fine. And I turned into the drive. My three daughters were sitting on the edge of the drive laughing absolutely hysterically. This true story, this is what I said. I said, Lord, thank you. Thank you for letting me come home right now. I mean, all the times that I've been on call and my job is pressures have kept me away from, you know, piano recitals and birthday parties and all the time I've missed with my daughters. What a precious moment you've let me have to come back and see the look at the joy on my daughter's faces. Lord, thank you for letting me come home right now. What a blessing. So I jumped out of the car and said, girls, what's caused you to have such joy? And they said, read the truck. (laughs) Well, I went over and read the truck. Let's just say my daughters were not disappointed. (laughs) I had a grade three nuclear meltdown right in the middle of the driveway. Last thing I remember, I was curled up in the fetal position, babbling incoherently. My wife came out and threw a bucket of water on me, and I kind of brought myself to enough that I jumped up, ran in the house, picked up the phone, and called the U-Haul place. They had just closed. (laughs) Therefore, I had to leave my medical practice and enter full-time creation ministry in, of all things... An evolution (laughs) U-Haul. Folks, it ain't easy being me, okay? (laughs) Go to our website, www.answersingenesis.org. Go to the search engine and just type in millions of years or carbon-14 or potassium argon. We want to give you lots and lots of information about this issue. People ask me, well, Tommy, you know, you don't believe in the millions of years. How old do you think the earth is? We say roughly 6,000 years. Where do you get that idea? Well, so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. The biblical genealogies, the biblical chronologies give you an age of the earth roughly 6,000 years. My favorite work on the subject is called simply the chronology of the Old Testament, Dr. Floyd Nolan Jones. This is a wonderful, wonderful resource. I could not recommend it more highly. I tell people this is part detective story and part history book. There are no gaps in the genealogies. There are no errors in the chronologies. This is a wonderful, very readable work on the chronology of the Old Testament. This is such a great book, by the way, that my wife and daughters and I have gone through this cover to cover twice as a family Bible study. You got questions about the age of the earth and about biblical chronology. This is the very best work I could point you to. Don't forget our Answers Book series, Answers Books 1, 2, 3, and 4, particularly as regards the dating methods. Answers Book 1 has a chapter on carbon-14 dating and the so-called long-age methods. Answers Book for Teens we talked about earlier. Don't forget Answers Book for Kids. Folks, we need to start training up our kids from the very earliest age. Let's start answering their questions as soon as we possibly can. The book already gone. Lots of DVDs, Global Warming, How Can a Loving God Allow Death and Suffering. Didn't have a chance to talk about our Dragon Legends book. We're going to talk about dragons and dinosaurs a little bit more tomorrow night. There are a lot of uh, historical writings throughout the last few centuries from merchants and historians and adventurers, people who are chronicling their travels or chronicling the, the history of an area or a region. And very frequently you'll get very detailed descriptions of creatures that they in those days called dragons that I would submit in our day and age we would call dinosaurs. Very fascinating reading. The book Dinosaurs for Kids, A is for Adam, D is for Dinosaur. And don't forget our conference special, the YouTube special. The more items you get here at the conference, the bigger discount we, we can get you. We want you to have your own creation apologetics library in your own home. Uh, don't forget the Ken Ham Creations, uh, Foundation's Curriculum Kit. Six DVDs broken into 12 lectures with a teacher's guide and a study guide. It's a wonderful way to have, uh, like I say, a complete video of a creation conference 
comforts in your, in your own home. One thing I will mention, I didn't realize this at the end of the second session today, some of the resources we have are no longer here. We, we've sold out of a number of things, but anything that we've had here at the conference, if you still want those things, we can back order those things for you. You still get the conference price. Anything you back order, what happens is you fill out the back order form, the folks at the desk will help you, and I'll take it back to the office when I get there this week, and I'll turn it in, and we'll ship it to you. We pay the shipping. So you don't lose anything, except you just got to wait about 10 days or so to get your to get your material. So anything that we've run out of, you can talk to the folks out there about back order. And with that, back to him. <laughs>